Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false, prof false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We're at chapter 20 in our teaching series through Revelation, which is one of the passages I, like, I've been getting like the most questions about uh, ever since we decided to do this series, like from you guys and from some of our church planning supporters who uh, like listen in from time to time. People are, people are like, what are you going to do with chapter 20? What are you going to do? Because it's one of the most hotly debated passages of the Bible. Revelation 20 is about what's called the millennium. It's mentioned six times in the first six verses. Uh, millennium means a thousand years. So if you're a Star Wars fan, you might think the Millennium Falcon. Uh, or it might be how you describe how long we've had to deal with like COVID variants, right? Or uh, if you serve in the nursery uh, with Kelly, it might be how long it feels when I go over my preaching time uh, on some Sundays. Sorry about that. Ke Kelly's giving me a thumbs up back there. Um, but Revelation 20 describes the millennium as a thousand-year time of peace and waiting. And I want to be straight with you guys, because uh, how we interpret this passage, this, this, this thousand years, like when, when it happens and its significance, uh, it has been widely debated uh, amongst 
Christians who, who love the Bible, who believe the Bible, especially over these last few centuries. That's why some people joke that this chapter is about 1,000 years of peace that Christians like to fight about. But just to be clear, I do have a view. And of course, I think my view is the right view, right? Like the confessional standards of our church, they state a view. But I also want to be clear that there are good and godly people that I highly respect who love the Bible, who teach the Bible on all sides of this, this issue, of this debate. And so when the millennium takes place and, and how we're to understand its significance is a, what we might call a secondary issue. Of Christian doctrine. That means that it holds, whatever you believe about the millennium really doesn't hold any sway on, on the, uh, your, your salvation, right? There are primary doctrines and there are secondary ones. Primary ones are the ones that like you have to believe in order to be a Christian in the true sense of that word. Things like the Trinity, Things like the deity of Christ, the authority of scriptures, the fallen nature of mankind, the necessity of a transformed life, being born again to be called a Christian. Then there are secondary doctrines, things like how we understand baptism. Do we baptize adults or can we baptize infants? How, how often should we, we take communion? What is its significance? Uh, and among that, uh, how are we to view the end times? How are we to view the millennium? Now, if you've been here long enough, you know that one of the things that, that we value is we, we want this, this church, as, as a new church, as a young church, we want this church to be a theologically informed church. And so I'm going to start by looking at the different views. I'm going to tell you which one uh, we think is right, but you're free to disagree. And just to be clear, if you do, no one's going to call you a heretic, all right? This is an open-handed issue. But in order to, to see and track with where we're going through the rest of the chapter, I, want to do, I do want to break down the three primary uh, historical views. The first is what we call premillennialism. Premillennialism. And uh, again, millennium means thousand years, right? And so premillennialism said, means that Jesus comes before the millennium. So in premillennialism, you first Jesus returns... He comes back. The second coming happens. And then after that, you have this very literal 1,000-year golden age where Jesus and all the saints, all the Christians throughout the world just reign over the earth for 1,000 years, over those who don't know Christ, over all the other lands. And so uh, they believe that, that uh, Christians have power in that golden age and that the world... Uh, uh, they, they have power over the world and that Satan has no sway. Uh, and then at the end of that time, there's going to be a great rebellion, a final battle, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I'm unconvinced of this view because it relies heavily on an, a very literal interpretation of Revelation 20, right? Which you might be thinking, I thought we loved the Bible. I thought we, we should take it literally. Uh, no, we take the Bible to be literally true, but we understand it Literarily, you've seen this throughout Revelation, right? Like there are certain symbols 
in numbers that we're not supposed to take literally, right? Like at one point, uh, the, the, all of the saints throughout history, all of the Christians throughout history are described as the 144,000 because you got the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, you got the 12 apostles of the New Testament, and so it's putting those two things together, 12 and 12, 12 times 12 is 144, you add a bunch of zeros after it, and so 144,000 is this symbolic number to say, hey, look, anyone who's ever followed the God of the Bible under the Old Testament or under the New Testament, the New Covenant. And so what we've seen is that Revelation is apocalyptic literature with all these symbols, signs, and numbers. And so in order to have a premillennial view, you basically have to change your interpretation for just one chapter. And for just one chapter, you have to start taking things very literally. Uh, another reason why I'm unconvinced of it is because it has become more popular uh, over the last few hundred years in the 19th and 20th century, particularly through proponents like, you know, the Left Behind series, um, uh, just uh, Calvary Chapel uh, movement. As many of you guys might have like a, a Schofield uh, study Bible uh, with like charts and graphs in, in, in the end of it uh, with, with about like showing how all the end time stuff like fits together. Um, and again, there are godly people on all sides of this debate. And, uh, but we are left unconvinced by this particular view. The second view is called postmillennialism. And under postmillennialism, you see the millennium as being figurative. So it's not a literal 1,000 years, but it's this figurative time that happens, um, and, and that happens uh, uh, after the return of, of, of Jesus. And so it's not a literal 1,000 years, but it's a figurative one. And so in this view, they believe that before Jesus returns, um, the spread of the gospel would be so effective that many people uh, would be, end up being converting to Christianity. Uh, so many people that the laws of the lands would actually start to be molded and shaped and formed by God's law. And so under this view, they believe that, look, things are going to get better and better and better till eventually like the new heavens and new earth will almost be established through us, through the church. Because the gospel is going to go forth, people are going to get converted, and then this, this figurative millennium will uh, begin, and then Jesus will return. And so, sorry, it's actually a figurative millennium that happens before Christ's return. But this view didn't really gain steam throughout history until, until the Great Awakening uh, in the 18th century. We got guys like Jonathan Edwards and George uh, Whitfield. What happened was the Western world was experiencing this incredible movement of revival, right? You ever studied the Great Awakening in, in, in school, right? Like all of a sudden, like people just start getting saved left and right. Like government officials, neighbors, family members, like tons of people start getting saved. And, and the whole Western world on both sides of the Atlantic were, were converting, but in my humble opinion, I think that the proponents of postmillennialism, they've, they've, especially the early ones, they've built their view based on that experience. Because let's face it, man, like during, during the Great Awakening, during this movement of revival, things were awesome, right? Things were awesome. And then by the time you have the Civil War, and then World War I, and then World War II, things aren't so awesome anymore. 
And so this view became harder to sustain after all these big wars. People were just started to remind, were reminded that, man, sometimes people, people are kind of awful. And so the post-millennial view started losing steam. Now, the third view is what we call amillennialism. Amillennialism. This is the view that I hold. This is the view in our confessional standards. This is a view that was held by guys like uh, Augustine, Luther, and Calvin, uh, was recaptured around the Reformation. And this view is based, I think, on the most plain reading of the text, the most plain understanding of this chapter, where the thousand years are also viewed as figurative, like a lot of the other numbers in Revelation, but it represents the age between the first and the second coming of Christ. And when Christ comes, he will bring his final justice against evil, sin, and death, and then he'll usher in the new heavens and the new earth in like one decisive swing. And so in the amillennial view, uh, you, you basically believe that this millennium is the time between the time Jesus first came 2,000 years ago and the time that he'll return, all of that is this figurative 1,000 years that is mixed with both hopefulness because of Jesus, but also suffering because of sin, as opposed to post-millennialism where they just believe things are going to get better and better and better and better until there's like no more evil, new heaven is new earth are here. So in other words, in amillennialism, we believe that the millennium is, is right now, all right? Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, then that means that Revelation 20 tells us how we should live right now. I believe that Revelation 12, 20 describes the here and the now, how we should live in the here and now. It's not about the future. It's about right now. One of the reasons is in this chapter, uh, this chapter it best describes, I think, the Christian experience right now. Furthermore, the whole book of Revelation is all about how we should live right now. Remember how, how Revelation started in Revelation 1 verse 3? John said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this book. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. And so look, look, I know there's a sense in which knowing what happens in the future informs how we should live right now, but I think this passage, this chapter, Revelation 20, makes the most sense if we interpret it as describing how we should live right now in this age. Now, on the one hand, because these interpretive issues are, uh, since this is a secondary doctrine, we should be humble. We should be humble about our, our view on this, regardless of where you might land uh, on this debate. And it's totally fine if you don't agree with me on this. We should be humble about it, myself included. But on the other hand, we don't want to be careless about what we believe about these things because these things matter, which we'll see throughout the chapter. And so we should hold our view on this chapter with conviction Knowing, but also knowing that regardless of your view, there's some timeless and hopeful, hopeful truths that are non-negotiable for the Christian that will breathe hope into these restless times, but remain humble with that conviction. And if we read this chapter in this way, we see that the main idea is this, that because Jesus has already come, we can wait with patience for a second coming and witness with power and hope until then.
So let's look into the text. Point number one, there's, uh, I'm going to give you throughout our time two things I want you to know and two things I want you to rejoice in. The first thing I want you to know is I want you to know that Jesus has come and that Satan is bound. Jesus has come and Satan is bound. Look at the first few verses in our text with me. John says, he then saw an angel coming down from heaven. Remember, this is a vision he's having. He sees an angel coming down from heaven and holding in his hand, and the angel's hand is the key to the bottomless pit and a great change. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, these verses, they give us this dramatic picture of Satan being bound. It's a picture of of a great thwarting, a great hindering of Satan's works. But you might be thinking like, man, how could I possibly believe that? Like I look around and I see so much evil in this world. And if that's you, like I'm sympathetic to that question. I really am. When you look at verse 2, this language of Satan being bound, you notice that it, that language is used by one other person in the New Testament. It's used by Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus is he's telling the crowds about his present power over Satan. And this is the language that he uses. And so we're not, by saying that Satan is bound, we're not saying that Satan has zero sway in our world. He obviously does. Just look around. But what we are saying is that there is a sense in which Satan's schemes are now greatly hindered because of what happened at the first coming of Jesus. Because Jesus came, because Jesus lived, because he died and rose from the grave, Satan has already been defeated. All right? If you remember, for those of you who were here when we studied the gospel of of Mark uh, a few years ago, um, which, of course, you don't remember. It feels like it was so long ago, right? Like anything before 2020 feels like it was ages, a millennium ago, right? So in Mark, but if you remember, if you remember far far back enough, in in Mark chapter 3, Jesus, he heals a demon-possessed man. And when he heals this demon-possessed man, some of his critics Some of his haters, they gather around and they start accusing Jesus himself of being satanic. And if you remember this passage of scripture, uh, what happens is Jesus, he looks back at the crowd. He knows exactly what they're saying amongst themselves. And he looks back at them and he says, what are you guys even talking about? Right? It's my loose paraphrase. What are you guys even talking about? How can Satan cast out Satan? Why would Satan cast out Satan? Then he tells him, it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. And to further illustrate the point, he gives him this word picture. He says, if you want to break into a strong man's house, if you want to break into a dude's house and plunder his goods, basically rob him, you have to bind him first, and then you can plunder his goods. And Jesus is saying that that's, in a sense, what he's doing. He's coming into Satan's house, this this place that Satan has had influence before Jesus came, and he's bound him so he can plunder his goods, which, to me, I don't know, like, that kind of word picture, that illustration proves to me that Jesus has a sense of humor, right? (laughs) Because could you imagine, like, his disciples standing around Jesus, and he's like, hey, look, it's like this. 
It's like when you rob a guy's house, they're like, what? Like, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> but he's like, look, if you, if you want to break into a dude's house, plunder his goods, you've got to bind him first. And Jesus says, in a sense, that's what he's doing to Satan at that very moment. He's come down on earth. He's here to bind Satan. And through that, take everything that was once his. Jesus says to his disciples, the kingdom of God has now come upon you. I'm binding Satan. That's why you can now cast out demons. That's why you can now spread the message of the kingdom. And there's nothing, nothing, nothing the devil can do about it. In Colossians 2, I don't think I have a slide for this, but in Colossians 2, 15, it says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. In Hebrews 2, verse 14, the author of Hebrews says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, it's talking about mankind, how we, how we all share in that we have this common flesh and blood. He says, he himself, Jesus, partook in the same things. In other words, Jesus came, he took on flesh, he took on human blood, he became a person just like us. And he's, the author of Hebrews continues and says, so that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You see, all throughout the New Testament, you have this language that because Jesus has come already and risen from the grave, Satan has already been defeated. He's already bound. And this is a theme that we see all throughout. We've already seen throughout the book of Revelation. Remember, the book, Revelation, was written to breathe hope into suffering Christians, to tell them again and again, even though they're being persecuted, to tell them, you're not defeated. Look, even though you endure persecution, even though you're tempted to follow the Roman Empire, stand firm in hope. Jesus has already won the victory. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death itself. And that victory is now yours if you're united to him by faith. And so that's how we should understand John's words here at the end of the New Testament. We should understand his words by looking through the lens of Jesus' words at the beginning of the New Testament. Satan can't stop Christ. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ can't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. All that's left for Satan is to be destroyed once and forever, which we'll see at the end of the chapter. Now, does he cause harm? Yes, he does, absolutely. He does cause harm, but his power is hugely diminished. He's like a snake with its head cut off. You ever see that? Violent slashing about, hitting everything around it, but its source of evil is already gone. And check this out. Satan's work does not accomplish what he sets out to accomplish because of the resurrection. Satan's work will not accomplish what he hopes to accomplish. God is in control. Everything Satan does will end up working towards God's purposes. That's why we're promised like God will work all things for the good of those who, who love him. His purposes for us and his purposes for the world will triumph in the end. 
not just in spite of Satan's work, but sometimes through his work, right? What he means for evil, God will use for good. And then here's the lifeline for those of us who think the devil's going to hold us down, is that in the same way that Satan could not stop Christ, Satan cannot stop Christians. He's bound. That's the good news in the first few verses here. Number two, I want you to know that we can have great spiritual authority today. Know that we can have great spiritual authority today. In verse four, it says, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now look, some folks will say that, that this promise is an earthly promise. It's an earthly promise that, that Christians will one day in the future reign on earth. But I think this is about heaven. I think this is about heaven because all references to thrones in Revelation up until this point were seats of power that exist in heaven. And this is further confirmed, that view is further confirmed in the rest of verse four. When John says, also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Again, he's talking about the mark of the beast, right? And so uh, the mark of the beast, remember, is not a physical mark, right? It has to do with, uh, you know, buying into uh, the like demonic ideologies, letting your work be influenced by demonic forces. That's why the mark's on the head and on the hands, right? And, um, and it says that, 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 that the souls who've been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, like those who, who never bought into those things, they came to life and reigned with Christ for 8,000 years. So this isn't an earthly or physical reign, but a heavenly and spiritual one. Remember, the first recipients of this letter were being persecuted. They saw some of their leaders, including some of the apostles, had already been beheaded or crucified, martyred by this point, just for living for Christ. I want you to imagine, I mean, it's, we, we can't even fathom what, what, it, what it would be like to grow up in a time and a place and a culture where just to follow Christ means that, like, you might, you might be martyred for that. You might be persecuted and martyred for it. And so this verse, it provides an answer to this gnawing question that those early Christians would have had, which is, what happened to those brothers and sisters who've been killed for their testimony? And that question, that concern has been answered again and again throughout Revelation. But now, now in Revelation 20, the most glorious answer arises. The answer that they are reigning with Christ and will soon preside in judgment over their executors. I want you to imagine, because again, it's hard for us to like imagine what that might be like. Imagine that that happened to us, right? Imagine that there was such rampant persecution against the church that to do what we're doing right now was like illegal, right? And some of you are like, oh, isn't that how it was like two years ago? Like, no, you don't even know, dude. Like, like talk about like truly like illegal, like illegal to me. Your lives are threatened if anybody found out. And imagine one day that we just find out that the Sitzes have been arrested. Sorry, guys. 
<laughs> arrested, thrown in prison, killed for being leaders in the church, martyred for their faith. Man, imagine how bone-chilling that would be. Imagine for some of us how hard it would be to keep living for Christ after finding that out. Imagine how sad we would be for their family, for, the, for ourselves and the influence that, that they've had in our lives. And then imagine that you find out that where Brian and Linda are right now is reigning with Christ. And that they'll soon preside as judges over those who took their own lives. And that answer would bring so much encouragement to the rest, to those of us who are left. You see, the true victors are those who have already died in Christ and risen to a new birth. Imagine just the smile on the faces of those anxious relatives as they hear this for the first time. It's not that those who've been martyred will, will come to life in some future millennium. It's that they already are. They're already reigning. The victory's already theirs. And in verse 5, it says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So it just tells us that those who die without Christ uh, are awaiting final judgment. There's no purgatory. There's no place where you get to kind of like hang out or get a second chance. No, those who die without Christ are awaiting final judgment. But those who, who die uh, knowing Christ um, will be with him in death until that final judgment. And then in verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, do you know who he's talking about in this verse? As those who are priests of God and of Christ. It's those who share in the first resurrection. What happened at the first resurrection? Jesus lived, he died, he rose from the grave. That was the first resurrection. And he tells us, he tells us, now if you believe in that, if you place your faith in him, if you're saved by him, if you're saved by grace through faith in him, then the benefits of his resurrection also get applied to you. The benefits of his resurrection, the power of his resurrection also gets applied to you and you get to be now born again. So who is he talking about in verse six? He's talking about you and me. He's talking about us. Those who share in the first resurrection are those who have already died in Christ and been born again. Remember when you got baptized? You were brought down into the water and, and, and you were told, united with Christ in his death? and risen to walk in newness of life. What does Jesus say it means to follow him? It means you pick up your cross and you follow him. You deny your old self and you put on the new self. You walk away from your old life and you follow him now with this new life that you're given. Those who share in the first resurrection in verse six are those who've already died to themselves and been born again in Christ. Death will not be our end. Death will only be the beginning. And it says that during the millennium, we will be priests of God and of Christ. So you and I, 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a priest of God and of Christ. There's this great power and this great authority at work in us between the first and second comings of Christ. The power of the resurrection is in a very real sense at work in you. This isn't the only place we read about that. In Ephesians 1.19, it says the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in us by the Holy Spirit. Look, these verses, these verses will give you a humble boldness in your life for Christ. These verses will give you a humble boldness in your living for Christ. There's a kind of strength that the Spirit gives us that we are, I think, just too quick to dismiss. We're called here priest of God. Do you know what a priest is? If you grew up Roman Catholic like I did, you're thinking like that's the guy who sings in Latin and holds up like the giant wafer, right? Uh, that's a different priest, all right? In the Old Testament, a priest was someone who stood in the gap between God and people. He's a person who would come into the temple on behalf of the people, speak to God, pray to God, plead to God on behalf of the people. And based on what he experienced in the, in the, in the temple and the grace that he received, he'd come back to the people now on behalf of God and minister to the people. That's what a priest was at the Old Testament, someone who stood in the gap between God and people. There was a system of mediators that worked that way on behalf of the people. The prophet Moses talked about how he longed for the day that all people of God would have this unmediated relationship where you no longer need the temple and you no longer need the system of priests. Another Old Testament book, Ezekiel, specifically in chapter 36, talks about how one day that's going to happen. One day we won't need the temple. One way we won't need the priests because everyone will be a priest. And that's what we have today. That's what we have in the new covenant in Christ. If you are in Christ, then you are, in the true and fullest sense of the word, a priest of God. That means there will be no more need to have some special class of Christian that will tell you what God says. You will know it by his word that's given to us directly. You will know it by his spirit as it bears witness to you. And with that, with that comes power. With God's word at work in you, with God's spirit empowering you, comes spiritual authority. Did you know that? Did you know that you have spiritual authority as a Christian? You don't have to be behind a pulpit or at the top of an org chart to have spiritual authority. You don't, you don't have to be an extrovert to have spiritual authority. If you are in Christ and joined to a local church, then you are a priest. You are a mediator with spiritual authority to make a dent for God in this world. That's why when Jesus sends out his disciples and gives them the great commission, telling them to go out and make disciples, he sends them out in his authority. He doesn't say, hey, go make disciples, try really hard, fake it till you make it. No, he gives us his own authority, and then he says, go. He says, look, I'm the one who has authority, and I'm giving that to you. 
You're doing this underneath my authority. I've made you new. I've given you power. Now go and join with others and live out your new life together. Live out this new mission together. Think about it how like, if you walk to someone, up to someone in downtown Disney and say, hey, show me what's in your backpack. Show me what's in your purse. You'll probably get smacked, right? <laughs> You'll probably get punched. But if it's at a gate and you, and you have this, happen to have one of those you know, black like Disneyland security jackets on, then you'll do it. You'll do it because you know that that person has the authority to say that to you. And in the same way, look, our spiritual authority is not in ourselves. Your spiritual authority is not in yourself, but it's in something. It's found in something bigger than you. But God has given it to you because there are times that you will feel prompted by the Spirit to do some good or to share your faith with someone. The Spirit will give you power to do that. And the Spirit who gives you power to do that is the same Spirit who can tear down the walls of pride in another person's heart. Revelation 20 is getting you to recognize that you are priests. We are priests. You have authority in this kingdom with a confidence based not in who we are or in what we can do, but in who Christ is and what he continues to do. We are filled with his spirit and born again, as we read in our call to worship, for greater works that God has prepared for us beforehand. And so as his priests, we are participating in what God is doing. And we can move forward with confidence confidence in what he's doing. All throughout the book of Acts, when the church is just starting, the early Christians, much like the recipients of this letter, Revelation, the early church was wounded. They were persecuted. They were oftentimes scared. But God, God multiplied them. He multiplied them and he spiraled them into a fruitful and this dynamic existence. Revival breaks out. The early church was given authority, spiritual authority with their neighbors, with the government officials, with all kinds of people, not because they were smart and savvy, but because they were saved. That's it. They were priests given the power and ministry of reconciliation. Man, are we recognizing these dynamics at work in us? Do you know the spiritual authority at work in you, at work through you? Man, I have, I have great hope for the, our future as a church because, because I see this power, this resurrection power at work in many of you. Lives transformed, marriages rekindled, men going from passive participants to engaged members, leading their families. They're the ones bringing them, their families to church. 
when they didn't really like give the lick when they first started coming here. Like, I've seen this resurrection power at work in many of you. Look, our most precious resource is not a building or a bank account, but it's keeping in step with who we are and what we are in Christ. Number three, I want you to rejoice that Satan will be defeated. Satan will be defeated. Verse seven says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather, for, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So the picture here is that at the end of history, there's going to be a spiritual battle that will take place a massive spiritual battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil. And in those truly last days, in those truly end times, people will rise up. People from all around the world will rise up and focus their hatred against followers of Christ. Neighbors will gossip. Friends will turn their backs. Families will be torn apart as Satan uses his last-ditch effort to get people to renounce Christ and follow him on the road to hell. Some people, some people will cave at that point, revealing they never belonged to Christ in the first place. And the number of the nations assembled, verse 8 says, are like the sand of the seashore. The language is borrowed from Ezekiel, the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. It's a way of saying that the odds will look like they're stacked against the people of God. But battles of the kingdom of God always look unmatched, don't they? They always look unmatched. Think David and Goliath. Think Israel, the smallest, puniest nation, given the victory so that the world would see that it's not by the power of man that we win, but it's by the power of God. And in that final battle, as in every other, it is the power of King Jesus that wins. And the passage continues. I want to read a chunk of it right now, but from verse 9 down to verse 14. It says that these, these, these people that are, are rising up against uh, the people of God, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, <coughs> earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. <coughs> then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, describing the fires of hell. I know this is like one of these sobering, not so fun to read passages of scripture, right? We've covered this enough in our series through Revelation. But let me say this. Please know there is coming a time after the close of the millennium that Satan will be judged. 
His verdict has already been declared through the resurrection. But there's a day when that verdict will be carried out by King Jesus. These verses give us a warning of what will happen to us if we don't have Christ. And that's why, that's why those of us who belong to Christ, like, that's why we, we must embrace our priesthood as believers. Because our neighbors and our family members, people around us without Jesus are vulnerable to share in that same destruction. As his priests, we're called to participate in God's sovereign work by bringing his kingdom and the works of salvation to every neighborhood and to the ends of the earth by planting churches and making disciples. This leads us into the last thing that I want you to rejoice in. Number four, rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If you belong to Christ, your name is in the book of life. We read about it in the last verse, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But those who were in the book of life are spared. If you're a follower of Jesus, your name is in the book of life. If you follow Jesus to the end, your name is in the book of life. And listen, this, this is a truer reality than what we experience now. Where your name is, whether it's in the book of life or not, if your name is in the book of life, that is a truer reality for you than what you experience here and now. It's more real, it's more permanent, it's more powerful, far more than your work, far more than your social class, far more than your sexuality or your popularity. Wherever it is that you might place your identity, that's why Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 10, after they started, after they came back after like, like uh, uh, exercising all these demons, they come back and they're all stoked and they're like, oh, Jesus, like we did this and we did that and these demons, they ran away from us and we, we healed this demon-possessed man and they're like all stoked on it and Jesus responds to them. He's all, he's, he just he just has a straight face and he goes, hey, look, rejoice, rejoice not that the demons tremble before you, but that your name is written in the book of life. In other words, the demons, they do tremble before them. There is spiritual authority and power that they do have. But Jesus wants to make sure that they have their first things first, that they have the most important things first, the ultimate things ultimate. And he says, hey, don't rejoice so much about that but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. I'm looking around and I know that many of us have suffered greatly. You've lost precious things. We should pay attention to that pain and we should let Jesus heal where it hurts. But no that those sufferings weigh far less than your future hope that can never be lost.
Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.